This week, we finish a series that's seven weeks long. We've spent the last seven weeks looking at the church. We've called this series The People of God because our conversation has been one about the people of God. It is born out of this conviction that many Christians in our day and age, including myself at some points in my life, we have held a vision and a view of the church that is sub-biblical and it is below Jesus' own opinion of the church. And so my hope is that in studying the scriptures, we can be realigned in, in our understanding of what are the marks of the church? What does Jesus expect from his church? What does he desire that his people would look like when they gather under this moncure or this title of the church? A couple weeks ago, in the middle of this series, I was just reminded of the importance of it. As I was listening to a New Testament scholar, a guy by the name of James White, some of you might be familiar with him, he did a debate on a radio program in Europe. And the debate was between James White, who is an elder at a Reformed Baptist church in Phoenix, and another guy who was an online pastor of a chat forum church. And the debate was, do Christians need to meet together to participate in the church. And uh, he was arguing, yes, if you can, we should gather together physically. And the other guy was arguing that, no, anything we would do at church, we can do on The Sims. What the heck? <laughs> you can't, I mean, your avatar can take communion on The Sims, but I don't think it works that, that way. Uh, his basic argument was, well, you know, when we get to design our own character and meet in this chat room, everybody's just way more real with one another except that they're not real about what they actually look like or who they even are or, or any other number of things. But this is the culture in which we live, uh, that for many of us, we think the church is simply this good idea that the apostles came up with, but it can be shaped and reshaped and reformed into our own image to meet the cultural climate in which we live. And many Christians have swallowed this idea, but the New Testament reality is the church is not simply a good idea. It is the revelation of God as to how he would like to work in the world. And the church is not simply fixins on, on the side of your Thanksgiving turkey of Christianity. Uh, the church is the seedbed from which a healthy Christian life grows. The Christian life is one that has lived quorum Deo before the face of God, but also quorum Ecclesia, before the church. We live as Christians in the world, but also as a part of the church. It is important to us and our Christian life that we live it the way God intended, and that is in the community of the people of God. Jesus himself says, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not triumph against it. And so we've talked for these last few weeks about what are the marks of this church that Jesus is building. And the reality is that all of these marks that we've laid out for seven weeks now, all of them are, are not simply rooted in good ideas or practicality. They're rooted in Jesus. Every single mark of the church that we've mentioned is entirely rooted in the person and the work and the character of the man whose name we bear as followers of Christ Jesus. I guess Christ is his title and not his actual name, but it's rooted in Jesus. We've said that the church is a people of the word. Well, that's because Jesus is the word made flesh, and the word made flesh has said the scriptures cannot be broken. And whenever Jesus is challenged on issues of his ministry, he always points back to scripture. He says, have you not read? So the people of God are a people of the word because the word of God has given authority to the scriptures in affirming their truthfulness and their power. We've said that we're a confessing people. Why? Because the son of God asks you and I as Christians the same question he asked Peter. Who do you say I am? 
And my hope is that we, like Peter, would make this good profession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we would confess these things to be true. We have said that the church is an evangelistic people. We're evangelistic because in his great commission, Jesus sends us out. He says, go, preach, proclaim, make known the good news of the gospel to all of creation. And under the command of our Lord, we go as an evangelistic people. The church is a place of discipleship. Why? Because the Lord took for himself 12 disciples, and in that great commission, he told us to make disciples. The church is a group of people who fellowship with one another because the Son of Man came eating and drinking and meeting with people, breaking bread in the homes of men and women across the ancient Near East, or the Middle East, rather. And then before leaving, he institutes the Lord's Supper so that the life of the church would be a life spent around a table with bread and with wine. And we've said that the church is a place of worship in spirit and in truth. And we worship as a response to God's revelation and the fullness of God's revelation is seen in the face, in the person, and the work of Jesus. Everything that we do as a church is Christocentric. The church is born out of Christ and his person and his work and his ministry. These aren't simply good ideas. These aren't simply practical ways of getting more people to show up. We are living in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we come to our last topic in this series, the service of the church, the way that the church serves the world and the way that we as Christians serve one another as members of the body. And I don't think that this issue is any different, that the reason that we serve in our communities and in our churches is entirely rooted in Christ. And so it's with this in mind that we turn to Philippians chapter 2. Let me read for you this text that we're walking through. It's verses 1 through 10, and in it Paul says this, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, not a reference to the Macklemore song, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have... This mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this text, Paul makes this appeal to the church in Philippi. And the Spirit appeals to you and I through Paul's words as the people of God, as the church. The first thing that he asks is in verses 1 and 2. That if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit. That we should be of the same mind. That we should love one another. Paul's asking a rhetorical question here. He knows that there is participation and encouragement in Christ. He knows there's participation in the Spirit. He knows there's comfort in love. He's saying based on this, be of one mind mind, love one another. But, but the greater point of Paul's argument comes in verse 3. 
He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not into his own interests only, but also the interests of others. He's making this appeal that the people of God would be radically service-minded. That we would be willing to serve not simply one, or not simply ourselves, but one another. Not simply those in the church, but those outside the church. That the people of God would be marked by a heart of service. Now, as the, the pastor of this ministry, I have no problem confessing we don't do a great job with this. Anytime we've organized a service project, it is like pulling teeth to get people to show up. And the reality is, lest you get too down on yourself, that it's actually no better in the Western church abroad at all. The reality is that what we see here on Sunday nights is reflected in the church at large. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 80% of the people who attend the church attend it with the intention of being entertained and checking off their spiritual to-do list with no desire to serve in the life of the church and no desire to participate in the church's work in the world. And there's been a lot of reasons or a lot of ideas proposed as to why, why Christians in the West don't serve, why they don't help. And there's two that maybe we can mention. Uh, the first proposition, people say, well, maybe Christians don't serve out of ignorance, Maybe if they knew that Tampa was one of the top ports for sex trafficking uh, and human trafficking in, in the nation, and actually I think might even be in the world, if they only knew, maybe they would do something about it. But they don't know, so we have, we have to make sure that they know. Or maybe if they only knew how far $1 would go, uh, $1 a day to feed and keep alive a child in Africa, maybe if they knew, they would do something. <clears throat> or, or maybe if they knew what was going on in Uganda with child soldiers, maybe we can let them know by means of uh, documentaries and websites and things that will make them aware. And if only they knew, maybe they would do something. And born out of this are the commercials that you see on Christian television with the pot-bellied African children and the bearded man saying, one dollar a day, one dollar a day. So we think people don't serve out of ignorance. And there's likely some truth to that. The other reason that many people think that we don't serve or that the church is not service-oriented is laziness. It's that people know what's going on, but they've grown so complacent uh, that the, that the um, callousness of their hearts is so thick that they need to be shaken loose. The reason they're not serving in the church and in the world is just because they don't care and they need to be made to repent and feel guilty of these things. And from that reality, we get the pet shelter commercials with arms of an angel playing in the background with very sad-looking dogs and cats going, what's wrong with you? Feel bad about this and do something. And both of these things are realities. The reality is that the church in the West is lazy. The reality is that the church in the West is ignorant. But the reality that Paul grounds service in is not ignorance or laziness. He doesn't say, serve one another. Did you not know that Priscilla and Aquila don't have any money? Well, now you know. Go serve one another. Uh, nor does he try to, to guilt them into service either because these things are not sustainable. Paul roots Christian service not in ignorance and not in laziness or out of response to laziness. Paul roots Christian service in the incarnation. Why do we serve? Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Which essentially means this, that our lack of service is not simply ignorance. Our lack of service is not simply laziness. Our lack of service is a gospel problem. It's not simply a problem of laziness. 
It's a problem of not understanding the fundamental pillar of the Christian worldview, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul doesn't argue from ignorance or laziness. He argues from the incarnation. What he says is if you're not serving, you don't understand what Jesus did because if you did understand, you would be doing something different. He says it in this way. Let each of you look not into his own interests, but the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The textual variant says, which was also in Christ Jesus. Both statements being true. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Service in the Christian life is done in light of the reality of the Christian gospel. And when we are not service-minded, it says that we have misunderstood or have not recognized the implications of the gospel for our life. So how does the incarnation inform us about service? What, what is God becoming man in Jesus? What, how does that change the way we serve? Or how does that even tell us what service might look like? Well, Paul says this, and we just read it, but let me remind you that Christ. In was, uh, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And so the first thing that this might tell us about our service, the way that we serve in the church and in the world, is that Christian service and in Christian service, we must be willing to lay aside our comfort. St. Augustine, let me remind you of what we read during Advent. In Sermon 191, he says so beautifully, Man's maker was made man. He, the ruler of the stars, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread of life might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on his journey, that the truth might be accused of falsehood, that the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life itself might die. In the incarnation, in God the Son becoming man, the eternally begotten, unchanging, all-powerful, all-wise, all-good, all-sovereign Son of God steps out of heaven and onto the dusty roads of Palestine, infinitely condescending. The God who says to Moses, if you look at me, you will die. So far above you I am. says, I will now take on the form of a man. In infinite humility, Jesus empties himself and lays aside his claim to these rights, not emptying himself of his divinity, but choosing not to lay claim of all that's rightfully his because of it. And he walks as a man among us. Now, you may hear this and go, well, <laughs> I'm not a god, so I don't know what this means with regards to service. If you do think you're a god, one, don't take communion tonight, and two, talk to me afterwards. But we may listen to this and think, well, I'm not a god, so how does this change the way that, that we serve? Uh, the reality is that while many of us with our lips would say, I'm not a god, I'm not, you know, I, don't, I don't think of myself as exalted, most of us don't live that way. We have very highly exalted opinions of ourselves and of our rights. Several weeks ago, I was at Zaxby's, and I was 
ordering the platters for our Super Bowl party. And I thought it would take 15 minutes, and it turned into about 30 to 45 minutes because somebody at Zaxby's uh, had gotten his order wrong. And there was this um, very respectable-looking soccer dad at the front of the line screaming at this elderly woman who was uh, behind the behind the bar at Zaxby's, that's not the right word, behind the counter at Zaxby's, just screaming at her, demanding that he, he get his food back, that he get a refund. Not only did he get a refund, but that he get uh, vouchers so that he could eat free on Zaxby's for however long. And this is during lunch breaks. This is around 12 o'clock. Uh, and so, uh, so he, I mean, he obviously knows that this line has grown to 15 or 20 people as he continues to rail against the woman from Zaxby's. Uh, at the expense of everyone behind him who probably won't get to eat now because their lunch break has been taken up by this man complaining in a horrendous fashion. But what's the problem here? The problem here is that he thinks his rights and his time is more important than anybody else in that restaurant. The problem is that although Christ is high and exalted because he deserves it, we exalt ourselves to the same position and we have no right to And this bleeds into our service because then when it comes time to serve, we say, well, you know, I would get up early and help set up for church, but, you know, I really need to sleep in. This bleeds into our service because we say, you know, Saturday is my only day off, so I don't think I want to spend it at a kid's place. It bleeds into our service because we exalt ourselves to the extent that we could give up one cup of Starbucks for the week and we could donate to the Women's Resource Center and we say, yeah, but I've really earned this. I've had a hard hard week. And we exalt ourselves beyond what we actually deserve, even though the Son of God empties himself of everything that he truly does deserve. The incarnation tells us that we have to be willing to serve humbly. If the Son of God, eternal, omnipotent, all-powerful, can step out of heaven and into the dusty roads of the Middle East and wash the feet of 12 dirty Jewish men, you and I can do more than what we do. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a place for balance. The reality is that in taking on human form, Jesus had to sleep. Jesus had to eat. Jesus couldn't be in two places at one time. He, he took on the limitations of our flesh in becoming incarnate, and we have limitations. I'm not telling you that there aren't going to be times where you have to say, I can't do it this time. But the reality is that we could all do much more than we do. But we fail to let the incarnation truly make an impact on the way we serve. So Paul goes on. He says, being in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The next point, I'm going to reword So don't write what's on the screen. Uh, Christ humbles himself to death and death on a cross. This tells us that our service as Christians will be costly. It will cost us something. When I was in high school, this, and I guess most of us were in high school around the same time, this trend started to kind of take root in our age of Christians. And it was when everybody just all of a sudden cared about Africa out of nowhere. Uh, It was when the Invisible Children documentary came out, uh, and then I remember all the student worship, or not worship, but the student Christian organizations, they all started giving out the Invisible Children bracelets, and uh, and then all of a sudden, this was right right during the MySpace and Facebook transition period. If any of you are old enough to remember where you had both, uh, that was a time. Uh, And so, what suddenly started to happen is a great number of very basic white people 
would post pictures of themselves surrounded by African children. Or they would change their Facebook banner to to them uh, loving on these kids in Africa. And I don't want to question the sincerity of it entirely. But for so many of us, myself included, our service became a way to show people how righteous we were. It became a way to feel vindicated, to check off my good deed for the day. It became a way for us to pat ourselves on the back and then have everybody else pat us on the back via social media by liking our pictures of how sacrificially we give. The reality is that if the cross tells us anything about Christian service, it says this, that it will not be glamorous, that it will be costly, and it will cost you blood. For all that we have made of the cross now, when the apostles watched the Son of God hang on the cross, there was no glory in it. There was sorrow. They saw the Son of Man humiliated, betrayed into the hands of sinners. They wept. The cross is glorious because we know what comes on the other side of it. But it is a costly, bloody, painful act of service. Listen, Christian service is not glamorous. It's taking the 3 a.m. phone call from somebody who desperately needs prayer. It's giving up sleeping in on a Saturday morning to work with foster care kids in our community. It's being willing to take a thankless job of moving chairs, which, by the way, I hate. But knowing that in this costly act of service, without glamour, without praise, without any sort of fanfare, that the kingdom of God goes forward and that Christ is honored in it. The the incarnation tells us one that we have to be willing to lay aside our service. It tells us, too, that our service will be costly and there will be times where it seems thankless. But Paul goes on. He says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, if all that the incarnation and the cross told us about Christian service was that it's going to be bloody and painful and thankless, then I think we would all despair. And I think most people would go, what's the freaking point? much in the same way that Paul says that if the only thing that happened at the end of the life of Jesus of Nazareth was his crucifixion and death, you and I are without hope and to be pitied above all people. But the incarnation of the Son of God does not end with his crucifixion. It doesn't even end with his resurrection. It ends with his return. That Christ has not simply conquered death in the cross, but soon will conquer sin itself in its entirety in his return and the renewal of heaven and earth. The reality of the Christian life is that even in our humility and even in our sacrificial service, there will be times where you and I serve the world, we pour ourselves out for our community, and it is thankless, utterly thankless. There will be times where we pour ourselves out for the people around us and there is no gratitude expressed and we will go unrecognized. But if there is any promise in the incarnation, if it truly tells us something about service, 
It means that we can labor without thanks, knowing that our vindication does not come from the world we serve. Our vindication comes from the one who has overcome the world that we are serving. The vindication in our service is not people patting us on the back or liking our pictures of doing missions trips or or feeling good about ourselves. Our vindication is well done, good and faithful servant. Receive the kingdom I have promised for you. A number of years ago, um, my dad let us know that he was going to be pretty busy with work over the coming months, that, that he was going to be uh, working long hours and that, and that he was going to be exhausted and, and frustrated. And so he kind of gave us this fair warning. And he launched into a several-month season of early mornings, late nights, um, constantly being called back into the office over and over and over again. And I could just see it wearing and tearing on my dad until finally it stopped. And then one day he and I were sitting uh, in the living room and we were watching the news together, which rarely happens because the news is depressing. Um, but we were watching the news together, and, and my dad uh, pointed to it. And, and on it, this, this story came out, and the story said case breaks, or the, the state breaks, huge case against so-and-so. And he says, do you want to know why I was gone so much? It's that. And there had been this huge undercover operation that had just blown up on the part of the state. And he had worked hour after hour after hour. And it had seemed thankless at the time. But in the end, that labor is vindicated. The hope of the church is not that we will be liked. It's not that we will be loved. It's that at the end, Jesus wins. And he vindicates his people for serving him faithfully. And recognizing that the incarnation compels us to serve. So, as we finish this series talking about the people of God, maybe it's best to conclude in this way. The people of God pour themselves out for the life of the world in their service, just as the Son of God poured himself out for the life of his people in the church. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we are thankful that as we move into the Easter season, we remember this tremendous work that you've done in sending the Son to redeem. In Christ, we thank you for going willingly, humbling uh, in, in humility, emptying yourself so that we might be saved. Lord, far be it from us to look at the cross with thanklessness. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that um, you haven't simply saved us, but you have in your incarnation, your death, and your resurrection shown us what it means to love and to serve. And, God, I pray that tonight is the beginning of us serving more faithfully, not out of guilt, not out of compulsion, but out of awe at the incarnation that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, I ask these things in Christ's name.